As we continue through this season of resurrection, that is the Easter season, if you've done your personal worship this week, you know that we come to the story of two guys who pick a really, really, really bad time to quit on Jesus because they quit on Jesus on the morning of the resurrection. And if you think about that for a second, that lends a little bit of authenticity, I think not just to the story that we're going to look at, but to all the stories that include the story that we're going to look at of the life of Jesus. And I say that because I think that if you or I or anybody else was to sit down and try to create the story of a heroic figure, it's highly unlikely that we would create the story of a heroic figure who's abandoned by two of his most intimate disciples on the day of his greatest triumph, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what these guys do. And I want to work through with you for a second what it is that they have to overlook to do this. Because I think this is helpful. These guys in all likelihood have been traveling around with Jesus for the better part of the last three years, for the whole of his public ministry in all likelihood. They haven't just been a part of the great crowd that shows up everywhere he goes. They've been a part of the small crowd that follows him everywhere he goes. Which means that at least allegedly, what have they seen? They've seen him manifest his power over the natural realm. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him feed thousands of people from a little boy's lunch. They've seen him speak to the wind and to the waves. And they've seen that the wind and waves obey his word. He's walked on water. Good grief, what is the message of that? Well, it is at the very least that he's not like me or you or them. He's the master of the natural realm. Why? Because he's the creator of it. That's the point. And not only that, they've, they've seen him master all of the effects of sin and death that he's come into the world to defeat with his life. So the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk. People who are paralyzed are not just regaining their senses, but they don't even have to go to rehab. Like they just get up, take the mat that they've been carried around on, maybe even for the whole of their lives, up off the ground and walk away. Dead people have been raised. And not only that, but they've heard Jesus tell them who He is. Which, by the way, makes sense of everything that I just laid out. Because if He is the invisible God made visible, God in human flesh walking around on the planet, the author of the creation and of life, okay, you would expect all of those things. Like, none of those things would be head-scratchers for any of us at this point. So they know who He at least claims to be and has proven to be through all the miraculous things that I've just outlined and far more. And then in addition to that, as they're heading toward Jerusalem... He tells them in advance, guys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to get to the city. One of you is going to betray me. Oh, and then I'm going to be arrested and falsely charged and tried and convicted by the religious leaders of the Jews. And then they're going to crucify me at the hands of the Romans. And then I'm going to be put into a tomb and a stone is going to be rolled in front of the mouth of the tomb because it's just a cave. And they're going to put a seal on that tomb so that nobody can violate and and get in there and I, you know, can be stolen by anyone in terms of my dead body. And oh, then after that, on the third day, I'm going to come forth from the grave. And everything that he said would happen up to the morning of the resurrection, and even including it, just not to their minds, has happened. I mean, they could have just gone down the list. Betrayal, yep. Arrest, yep. Falsely charged, just all the way to the crucifixion. These guys are gathered together with this other little tiny band of brothers and sisters, huddled in fear, hiding for their life on the morning of the resurrection. And they're there, they've heard this too, when the women who have been traveling around with them too for the better part of the last three years, they know these people. 
show up and they're all agitated and excited and thrilled. And why? Because they show up with this story and they tell the story. And the story is, we went to the tomb. It's the morning of the third day. And we came bringing burial spices because we expected Jesus to be dead. But he isn't dead. The seal is broken. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. An angel appeared to us and said, why do you seek the living amongst the dead? I mean, good grief. He is alive. He's risen just as he said that he would. Now go tell the disciples about it. And on their way to tell the disciples about it, they meet the actually physically, you know, really risen Jesus. So they show up with this story. Everybody thinks they're nuts. Nuts. That too is pretty authentic, isn't it? This is so consistent with human nature. But Peter and John run to the tomb and then they come back and they say, all right, so here's the deal. We didn't see an angel. We didn't see Jesus. But here's what we did see. Stone rolled away, seal broken, tomb empty, except in the tomb are all of the linen wrappings and the shroud that Jesus was effectively mummified in according to the Jewish burial customs of their day. They're all in the tomb and they're neatly folded and left behind. Like if you're stealing his body, why do you do that? It's odd, isn't it? Okay, after all of that, these guys say, yeah, I think we're done here. And they leave. They leave the disciples. They leave the city of Jerusalem. They begin now to walk to this little town of Emmaus. It's seven miles away. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. Because here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, good grief, guys, just go. You know what? If after all of this, I still have to prove myself to you, I'm just going to find somebody else. He doesn't do that to them. And I point that out because he doesn't do that to me and he doesn't do that to you. And I point that out because everyone here is a skeptic. And all of us at times doubt. You're like, oh, I never doubt. Yeah, well, wait till some tragic thing happens. And it calls the goodness of God into question in your mind. We all struggle. We all wrestle. And I love the fact that Jesus does not let us go even when we're running away from Him. He pursues these guys. He, he begins to walk alongside of them. And they don't recognize Him. Why don't they recognize Him? Well, first of all, they're not expecting to see Him. They think He's dead. So, but then secondly, because somehow He cloaks, He masks His identity, conceals it from them. And you say, well, why would He do that? I think that's a great question because it sure seems to me that He wants the whole world to know that He's risen. That's what He's tasked us with as a mission. But He conceals Himself to these guys for this seven-mile journey only so that he can have a very important conversation with them from the Old Testament Scriptures. And so that he can show them from these Scriptures, these 39 books that were written by all kinds of different authors over a huge, enormous period of time. And all these guys come from different backgrounds and different skill sets and different vocations. He's going to say, look, guys, I'm going to walk the next seven miles and I'm going to show you why from this very diverse collection of books that today we call the Old Testament, my resurrection is not at all crazy. In fact, it's expected. Here is the pattern that unifies the whole of the Bible, Old and New Testaments. There is life. There is death. There is burial. And there is resurrection. And in most of the stories, incidentally, on the third day. It's everywhere. 
It's all over the place. So Jesus appears to these guys as they're leaving the city. He walks alongside. They don't know who he is. And he says to these guys, so what are you talking about? And they look at him like he's crazy because he's coming from Jerusalem just like they are. And everyone knows what they're talking about. But they, you know, are courteous enough to fill him in on his own life. So we're talking about Jesus and we thought he was the Christ. And, and, you know, but then he was crucified and buried. And these crazy ladies in our group came forward today and they said that he's risen from the dead. And you know what? We've just had enough. And notice what Jesus says to them because Jesus is not so He is kind, but you don't have to wonder what his point is, which I kind of appreciate. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, Jesus said to these guys, he said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe what? The the message of the ladies? Well, yeah, that too, but, but he wants to talk about the Bible. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, where? In what we call today the Old Testament. And then he says, was it not necessary? Meaning, according to the Old Testament, all of these different authors with all of these different stories that really only tell one story. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things that you guys are talking about and then enter into his glory. That is to say that he would live a blameless life, that he would die, that he would be buried in a pit of death, but that he would come forth from the dead. He would be relieved from death and resurrection. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the Bible says, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary according to the Bible that you guys claim to believe and know that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then notice what Jesus does, because it's the point of the whole trip. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he said, okay, listen, we got seven miles, a little time. I think I've got just enough time to just walk you through the Old Testament, and we'll just start with Adam and Eve, and then we'll go Cain and Abel, and then Noah and Abraham, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and and all the judges and and all the kings and all the prophets. And here's what I'm going to show you. Life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's the pattern of suffering and glory. It calls all these books together. It unifies them as a whole. It's the story of one man, and he's the one guy. And why does he reveal all of this and show all of this to them? Why does he do that? And why does he call us to go into the Old Testament with this statement to look for it and looking for it to find it? It's not to win the argument, guys. It's not merely to cons- you know, convince us that he's actually risen. Like he doesn't get to the end of the deal and they go, oh, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. And he goes, well, that's it. My time is up then. Go all the way to the end of the chapter. What is he doing? He does this to convince them that he's actually risen, yes, but only so that he can then send them, me and you, out into the world as witnesses of an actually risen Jesus. And so I thought maybe it would be helpful for me to go with you back into the Old Testament and not look at all of the stories together because, you know, we've got another service coming. But but just grab one. One that I have to believe Jesus talked with these guys about. And to show you the pattern, life, death, burial, resurrection, prefiguring, pointing toward the one who would collect all of these stories up in his singular life and live it out literally. And to what end? 
so that you might go out as witnesses. And I chose this story, not just because of the pattern, it's there, but because it's going to help us learn what it looks like to live as a witness. And so I want to look at one of the stories involving a character from the Old Testament, a man whose name is Daniel. And if you know the story of Daniel, then you know that Daniel is a Jew, and you know that Daniel is a prophet, and you know that Daniel originally hails from the great city of Jerusalem, but at the time of this story, and for most of his life, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Babylonians came and overthrew the city of Jerusalem and collected up a whole bunch of Jews, including him, and marched them seven or 800 miles to the city of Babylon. And so then what is Daniel? He's an exile. He's a Jew living as an exile in Babylon. And at the time of this story, he's an old man. He's probably in his 80s. And he's working as one of the highest officials of the Persian king, no kidding, of most of the world. And the flow chart of the king goes something like this. King Darius, so there's the king. He's at the top. And then there are three commissioners, of which Daniel is one. And then there are 120 satraps who were like governors over various regions of the great kingdom of great King Darius. But King Darius now begins playing with the idea and planning, in fact, to take Daniel, one of these three commissioners, and to exalt him to the right hand of the king of the world. And that's going to change the flow chart. So now it's going to be King Darius, Daniel, commissioners, satraps. Get the idea? Because all of the other commissioners who used to be co-equal with Daniel and all of the satraps beneath all of them got the idea and they did not like the idea. And so then what do they begin to do? They try to avoid that from happening. So they start to investigate Daniel. And at this point, again, he's, he's 80 plus. He's lived a long time. He's given them a lot of life to investigate. And they come up with exactly no dirt on this man, Daniel. So then what do we have with Daniel? We have a blameless life. And so they punt on that and they go to plan B. Plan B is conspire together to get the king to put Daniel to death. And the only thing that they have working for them in that regard is Daniel's faithfulness to his God, is the fact that every day, and they all know it, Daniel leaves the palace and he goes to his house, which is probably connected to the palace since he's one of the three highest officials in the world. And three times a day he goes up to the upper chamber in his house and he goes to the windows that face the city of Jerusalem and he prays. So then notice what these guys do. Daniel 6, beginning in verse 6. It says, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. It means literally they came by a thronging. They came in an uproar like a mob is the idea to the king. And they said to him, oh, King Darius, live forever. And now that we got the niceties out of the way, oh, king, let us tell you a big fat lie designed to put Daniel to death. And here it is. It is that all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed. No, they're not. Daniel's not in agreement, but they represent that he is. And I want you to imagine the pressure on the king. Even kings are pressured politically. All of his leaders are in agreement on this. So he's going to go against them? And it seems innocuous. It even seems flattering. O King Darius, live forever. All of us are in agreement on this, that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. That is to say that you should create a law, O king, that says that whoever makes a petition, whoever prays to any god or man for the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So what is the den of lions? It's a man-made cave. 
and it contains death. Why? Because it was filled, it housed these lions that were kept on the edge of starvation so that whenever anybody was thrown into it, I mean, they ate quickly. They were torn apart by the lions. That's a little unnerving. And so then they say, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document, which they no doubt hand him with a pen, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. So here's what they knew and the king knew. If he signs this into law, even he can't change it. It's done. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And then we read in verse 10 that then Daniel, or when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he prayed to the king for the next 30 days because good grief, his life's on the line. I mean, you know, it's kind of a big deal. It's not what he does. So then when he learned, that, then what did he do? Did he just, you know what, I'm just not going to pray for 30 days. Sorry, Lord, I just think I'm more valuable to you alive than dead. We're going to go 30 days. We're not going to talk. We've never done that before. We'll never have to do this again, hopefully. But I think you'll understand. I mean, good grief, my life's on the line. Is that what he does? No. Okay, so then for the next 30 days, Daniel went up to his house as normal, three times a day. He went to the windows facing the city of Jerusalem, but he shut the blinds so that nobody could see what he was in there doing. And nevertheless, he continued to pray to his God. Is that what he does? Because that would have saved him. No. Now, instead, we read that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and bitterly complained about how God had put him in this horrifying situation. Can't you do a better job of protecting your man? I'm one of the highest officials in the land. Lord, do you know how much influence I have over this kingdom? How much good I've been doing and can still do? And now this. So this is my reward. It's a remarkable guy, this Daniel. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God, just as he had done previously, knowing full well that this time the cameras were rolling and knowing full well as well that even if it costs him his life to do this, this is worth it. He is going to send a message to the king, to all of these other people, all of the leaders, and ultimately, as the story plays out, to the entire then known world that there is a greater king than King Darius and that there are things in this world worth dying for. But the trap shuts. So the commissioners and the satraps and all of these guys, they come in another uproar and in a mob and they come to the king and with great indignation and great insincerity, they demand that Daniel be put to death. And you can hear him, can't you? Crucify him, crucify him. Oh wait, that's the other story, isn't it? Or is it? Man, is it alike. And all of a sudden the king realizes what's happened and how he's been played. And this has been a political power move. And he realizes this isn't at all about flattering him, but, but it's at all about these guys wanting to get rid of this uniquely gifted man, Daniel. And he tries everything that he can to figure out a way to not put Daniel to death. But he's stuck because the law is unalterable. Once signed, he even he can't change it. 
And so we read in verse 16 that then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and he was cast into the den of death, into the den of the lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually, and I got that message by the way, deliver you. But deliver him from what? From death itself. And now watch this. And a stone was brought and laid where? On the mouth of the den, of the cave. But not only that, we read, And the king sealed the stone with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's. And he did that, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then it says in verse 19 that on the morning of the resurrection, okay, it doesn't say that, but it could. It says, At the break of day, the king arose and he went in haste to the den of lions. And the seal was then broken, and the stone was then rolled away. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out into the den in in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from death? From the lions. And then Daniel, who's kinder than me, because I would have just paused for a second and let the king sweat, you know, because it just... It had been a long night, right? I mean, it had to be tough. Daniel is too good for that. He said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to roll away the stone and free me from this place of death. Okay, no, but, but that's effectively what happens. My God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouths, thus freeing me from death. And they have not harmed me. And here's why, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, incidentally, I have done no harm. And then if you know the rest of the story involving Daniel, what happens? He's taken up out of the pit of death. He's exalted to the right hand of the king of the world. All of his enemies are judged. And then the king writes like an account of all of this, a decree to go out into where? The whole world by the hands of messengers, by the hands of heralds, by the hands of witnesses, declaring the greatness of the God of Daniel who is so powerful that he delivers even from death. My goodness i got to believe as Jesus is walking the road, trying to convince these guys from the Scriptures because they haven't believed yet what the women have said, that he said, guys, Daniel and the lion's den, come on, like you had that in Sunday school, like you've known this one all your life. Don't you see the parallels? Lay it down next to Jesus. Who is he? He is the son of the great king who is the king of the universe, who is God himself, but he's exiled here from his heavenly home. And he comes as a slave of the Roman Empire, as a Jew, and as a prophet. But he is so evidently blessed by the king. He is so manifestly gifted. He's unique. He's risen above all of the other religious leaders of the land. And so much so that he's garnering so much attention that they envy and hate him for they feel threatened by him. So what do they do? Plan A, they try to dig up dirt on him. They try to discredit him. They try to trap him with tricky questions and none of it works for he has lived a blameless life. So plan B, conspire together to put him to death. And how do they do it? Political pressure on Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, who needs to be the one to do it. They come to him with a lie that Jesus has claimed to be a rival king to Caesar, and Caesar does not tolerate rivals. And if you don't put him to death, we're going to tell Caesar that you didn't put to death a rival king. And Pilate sees through all of this. He knows that's not the issue. He's being played politically. He understands that and spends part of the day trying to figure out how to let Jesus off the hook. 
But he can't. For there is an unalterable law in place that he doesn't even know about. It's not a Roman law. It's the law of heaven. And here's what the law of heaven says. It says, I have created all things and all people to live perfectly and entirely for me. For that is A, what I deserve, and B, that is the highest and greatest use of every created thing in person. And I am so valuable that the failure to do that results in death. There's your penalty. And it's not death of this body and this world alone. Jesus comes and says, listen, don't fear the ones who can take your life in this life. Fear the one who can take your life in this life and then destroy your soul. Fear him. So then what do we need? Because we're cooked, right? We need a perfectly innocent one who is willing to take what we deserve so that we, by faith, as a gift, can receive what he alone deserves. So therefore, if that's going to happen, Jesus has to die. And so he dies, and he's embalmed, and he's placed into a tomb, which is a cave hewn out of solid stone, and a stone is rolled in front of the tomb, and a seal is placed on the stone. And there he lays until the morning of the third day when the angel rolls the stone back, and releases the one who has come back to life. For he's the author of life. And I can totally see Jesus explaining all of this to these guys. But then having gained victory over the dead, he's exalted to the right hand of God. He's given all authority in heaven and on earth. His enemies have been and will be judged. And what does he command us to do? To do what these guys then went off to do which is to go live as witnesses to an actually risen Jesus in the world and to understand that that is why we're here. That's our calling. These guys get all the way to Emmaus with Jesus. They persuade him to stay for dinner. He breaks the bread. They realize who he is. They see the actually risen Jesus having received the lessons in advance. He disappears and they go running back to the disciples. And together with that group of disciples, guys, these men and all the rest of them endured for the rest of their lives persecution, poverty, rejections of all kinds, and torture, and for many of them, torturous deaths. Martyrs. All of them claiming and refusing to deny that they had seen a risen Christ. That's something to contend with. That's something, I think, to think about. And the challenge for us is to learn how to live as witnesses as well. And I think that Daniel has a lot to teach us in that regard. And here's why I say that, because just like Daniel was an exile from Jerusalem who's living in Babylon, yeah, we're exiles too. We're exiles in the city and we're exiles in the country that we have grown up in. We haven't left it. We haven't been captured and taken to you know, a different place. I, I understand that, but it has left us. And we can be angry about that or we can embrace that as a wonderful, incredible gospel opportunity to love and serve the city in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a statistic that's going to be hard for you to believe. The latest Barner reports indicate that Broward County, Florida, and we're pretty low like nationally, like nationally, and then there's us, which speaks to the severity of the condition of South Florida. Okay, 3% of Broward County is evangelical Christian. Think about that. 3%. I, I'm, I'm struggling to believe that only because that just doesn't seem to be my experience, but maybe my experience is a little bit off because 
I mean, I'm a pastor of a church. I see a lot of church people wherever I go. We, we have a school. I see a lot of school people wherever I go. My kids, after they leave Bethany, have gone to Westminster Academy. I know all kinds of people over at Westminster and Coral Ridge and Calvary and First Baptist. In other words, you know, as the Lord has ordained it, I'm pretty well connected within the Christian community. It's unusual for me to go to lunch or dinner and not have at least somebody come over and go, hey, that I know who's a believer. So it feels to me like, man, it's pervasive and it's 3%. We are not the dominant culture, and we haven't been for a long time. It used to be there was a day in our city and in our country where Christians held the positions of power and prestige and government and in education and in all of the culture-forming institutions of our city and of our land. That day, newsflash, long gone. We are marginalized, left behind, largely ignored, and seen by a lot of these folks as kind of been there, done that, tried and failed, as opposed to tried and found hard. Think about that. What that means, practically speaking, is we're not really very different from somebody who gathers up their family and gathers up support and gathers up prayers and moves to Japan or, or to China or to the Soviet Union or to Africa or to some other place where, okay, yeah, maybe the evangelical population is, I don't know, 1%, half a percent, 1%, 3%. Small. But here's our mindset, and we need to be disabused of that. Those guys are the missionaries. And we're going to pray for them, and we're going to write checks to them, and we're going to thank God for them. And then we're just going to keep going on, doing our thing. And we're sending churches as opposed to we're sent. No, we're the missionaries. We are living in exile, and we're to live as missionaries, which means that if you're a teacher, that's not who you are. You're a missionary who teaches if you're in insurance, that's not who you are. You're in a missionary who you know, sells insurance. If you're in construction, okay, that's not what you do. You're a missionary who's a contractor, etc., etc., etc. I saw two really profound examples of this just in the last couple days. As Matt said, Jim Daly, the president of Focus on the Family, was at the mayor's prayer breakfast and was one of the speakers. And I want you to imagine his life for a minute. That is an enormous organization that he runs raises over $100 million a year to run it, flies all over the place all of the time. You want to talk about a busy person. So after the prayer breakfast, he's just sharing a little bit about what's going on in his life and in his family, and he's talking about the fact that for the last two years, he and his wife, and mind you, they have two teenage sons. I think they're sons. Two teenagers already. Have been fostering a three-year-old and a five-year-old for the last two years. And he said that they went through the reunification process and so they, they, the children were reunified with their mother but the court required the grandparents to also be a part of the parental situation or that wasn't going to happen. So the grandparents signed on to the deal and then they just recently found out that the mom died of drug overdose. The dad has already died of a drug overdose. And so now what they're going to do in the next couple of weeks is fly to Tennessee which is where the kids and the grandparents are right now and sit down with these grandparents and go, okay, these kids are three and five. Do you guys have the juice, the runway, the ability to parent these kids all the way through high school and maybe into college or whatever else comes next in life? Because if you don't, we, the dailies, who really don't have anything else to do, will take them. 
He says, I'm 54 years old. I've already done the math on how old these kids and I'm going to be when they graduate from high school. Think about that for a second because after he gave that little statement, we sat around in our round tables and had a discussion and one of the questions is, what's missing from this city? So here's what's missing from this city. 54-year-old people who are willing to do that and rewrite their entire future in the doing of it. It's what's missing. Yesterday morning, I got a text message from somebody you don't know who doesn't come to this church. But I know him, I know his family, three young kids. So he texts me every once in a while, how can I pray for you? So I told him and I said, well, how can I pray for you? So he texts me back and he said, please pray that God will pour resources out upon our family. Here's why. Because in addition to what we're giving to our church, tithes, offerings, all the normal stuff, we have committed to give $50 each to 50 different missionaries. That's $2,500 every month going forward. That's thirty grand a year. I started to cry. <laughs> because I know these guys and they need the Lord to answer that prayer. They can't write that check and not feel it. That will affect what they drive. That will affect where they put their kids in school, or at least college perhaps. That will affect where they go on vacation and how much they spend. That will affect how much they dine out and where they go when they do. That will affect all of those things. They're missionaries, these people. And they get it. We need to get it. We have imbibed the comfort culture of our culture. And it has wrecked our witness. It is the God that we worship. I'm willing to do this much, and now I'm getting a little uncomfortable, and that's where we stop, because this is actually my God over here. No bueno. That is not what you're called to as a follower of Jesus, and it certainly is not what He did. Like, He didn't come into the world and go, you know what, before you scourge me, I just want you to know that this is it right here. Like, this is where I draw the line, because that is going to be uncomfortable. So you're welcome. When my dad's parents died, um, and they went through the house, they sent us all an email. Is there anything that you want? You know, they're selling things on eBay, so forth. I said, you know, there's one thing I want. There's a framed statement in my grandfather's office, or there was, it's now in my office, actually it's here. But it's a statement from the Heidelberg Catechism. And he hung it to the right of the door, so as you walk out of the office, it's what you see on the wall as you're leaving the room. And I want to read it to you, because it uses the word comfort. And it tells us where our comfort comes from. It is a brilliant biblical statement, and it says this, my only, ready, comfort in life and in death is that I with body and soul am not my own. But I belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ who with His precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things, don't miss that, must be subservient to my salvation. Whereby, or wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life. 
and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I think that is wisdom, and I think that it was wise of my grandfather to put it right next to the door of his office so that every day after he did his devotions, he had to walk by it as he headed out into the world. That kind of life looks like the life of those of us who are willing to be uncomfortable for the gospel when, not if, that's what it takes. It's the life of people who understand, you know what, I'm a missionary who work as a realtor or an accountant or whatever. And Jeremiah describes this kind of life in Jeremiah 29. Beginning in verse 4, listen to this. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so here comes the word of God, the God of Israel, to who? To all the exiles that I have sent into exile. Just stop for a second. We're sent into exile. Like it is providentially arranged that we live now and that we live where we live now. And I want to challenge you with that too. We are one of the most unchurched parts of the entire country, which incidentally, the United States of America is the largest English-speaking population of unchurched people in the entire world. We don't even have to learn a new language in that sense. But we're in one of the most critical areas. And man, I watch people come and go all the time. Now, I don't want to mess with your plans. That's between you and the Lord. But you might want to consider if, in fact, you're a missionary first and that's what your identity is, whether or not maybe this is the area, this place that is not really all that friendly. It's not really all that awesome. You get to drive down the road and have wonderful conversations with your kids as you pass certain establishments, which, by the way, is an opportunity too. But that's an, as, a, as an aside. It's not seen as a plus. Instead of fleeing, maybe you stick around on mission. Anyway, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, in that case, to Babylon, Daniel being one of them. What is he going to say? Make your life there. Make your home there. Live your faith there. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there where I've placed you and do not decrease, but seek the wealth fair of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare which I think is exactly what Daniel did I mean this guy worked hard for the pagan king and governed well and fairly for everyone not just his cronies not just his buddies not just his friends but for the benefit of everybody. This city ought to be in uniform agreement that it is a better place, even if they never come to faith in Jesus Christ, simply because we live for its welfare in the name of Jesus Christ. It's better because we're here. And Daniel prayed for his city, even when he knew it would cost him his life, unless the Lord delivered him from death. And he doesn't always, does he? He does in Daniel's case, because I think it completes the pattern of Jesus gives us a picture of Christ and his story. But he was willing to venture his life because Daniel knew by faith that the real Daniel, who is Jesus, would face the real lions and he would be devoured by them on his behalf. And that enables us to face the lions of life too. We can face the lion of disease when we know that our ultimate disease of sin, that's been taken by Jesus. Poverty and debt, listen, that's been paid for by the Lord. We can deal with the stuff here. Loneliness, discouragement, 
All of these things faced by Christ and even death itself. We can face death itself knowing that Jesus has defeated death for us in the end and that he's actually risen. It's emboldening. It gives courage. So I close with this. Number one, do you believe in an actually risen Jesus? And if you don't, look, you're not alone. I mean, probably 97% of people around here do not believe in that. But please think through how you can give an account for why it is these people went to torturous deaths defending the fact that they did see a risen Jesus. Because they've preserved the story for you at the expense of their own lives. Secondly, if you do believe in an actually risen Jesus, then are you aware of the fact that you're living in exile and that you're to live in exile as his witness, as his missionary, that missionaries are not just people you send checks to and pray for and read reports from, but, but they're you and they're me. Thirdly, how are you seeking the welfare of this city? What are you doing for the good of the people and all of the people of this city? In the name of Jesus. Fourthly, how are you praying for the people of this city? How much of your prayer life does the city occupy? Fifthly and finally, what lions are keeping you from living as an uncompromising witness to the actually risen Jesus where you go to school, where you work, where you live, wherever the Lord takes you? Because the gospel emboldens us to be a fearless, fearless people by taking everything that, frankly, ultimately and only we ought to actually fear, and swallowing it all up in a life, death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus did for us. Okay? So chew on all that. I know that's quite a bit. And, uh, and see what the Lord would have you do with it. Father, we do thank you um, for the one who has lived, for the one who has suffered, for the one who has died, and for the one who has risen. And we thank you for all of these people who saw him alive and could not unsee what they saw. Who, like their Lord, did not allow their levels of comfort stand in the way of proclaiming the gospel to the whole of the world. Theirs and their witness still stands in ours today. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to deal with the idol of comfort and you would awaken us to the reality that we are exiles And that the greatest joy and use of our lives is to take up our true identity as missionaries, as sons and daughters of the King sent into the world to herald to the ends of the earth that there is one in whom hope does not disappoint. For He has lived, and He has died, and He has actually risen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.